Um, if you think about, for example, the debate, the debate between the Federalists and the Jeffersonians in the 1790s, each side is convinced that the other is... You know, and I, I think there's a point about this that's of more resonance for the long-term nature, both of America and of other states that had a populist politics or republics as, uh, in, the, in the terms of the 19th century. And that is there is a long-standing tension in political thought of that period between notions of aristocracy and notions of democracy. They're borrowing from Aristotle. And the idea on the part of each is that there is a tendency, if you verge to the other, to cause decline because virtue is a crucial element of the republic. Now, just one last point. You made a very interesting point when you were talking about de Tocqueville. You also commented upon the Brit visitors and their sometimes pejorative com comments. The point to bear in mind is that those British visitors were associating with American Whigs who were, who were hostile to Jacksonian democracy. So in a sense, what the Brits were doing were parroting a line from within America. Yep. Uh, I, I think that's quite interesting. One of the difficulties, of course, in terms of the modern debate about the United States is that it's often, and that, that's one of the things I thought Charles's paper was so marvelous about, it's often not located as, in an as acute a sociological awareness as people had when they thought about America in the 19th century. All fair points. All absolutely fair points. I, I agree with that. And, 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 and let it be said, as you, as you say, absolutely right, the notion of American decline is there right from the uh, Jim, sorry, uh, Jim Pearson. Uh, thank you. I thought that was a wonderful paper. Enjoyed it very much. Uh, terrific paper. Uh, let me just comment on a paradox that I see in Tocqueville from today. I don't know if it's valid, but it strikes me as one. Uh, one, as Charles Murray pointed out, uh, one problem today in the middle and lower class is not democratic. John Fonte. Uh, I want to pick up on that because uh, I also thought it was a terrific paper. But what was interesting about one thing about Tocqueville is he saw the lawyers uh, as a very positive force, as a, an aristocratic force that could strengthen American democracy and, and in a very positive way. And yet today I'd say that certainly the American Bar Association is at the center of what uh, Jim was talking, just talking about, which is basically an adversarial intelligentsia, which an adversarial intelligentsia which is challenging and has a problem with the American regime. Um, one thing that Tocqueville said was that nowhere else in the world is the sovereignty of the people uh, more settled than in the United States. And I'll give a plug for my own book, uh, which uh, <coughs> Roger just published, called Sovereignty or Submission, uh, Will Americans Rule Themselves or Be Ruled by Others? Uh, and I picked that up from Tocqueville, the sovereignty of the people. I, said that Americans do not think so much in terms of Westphalian sovereignty, the sovereignty of the state, uh, but in terms of Philadelphian sovereignty, 
Constitution of the United States, the preamble, we the people of the United States. So sovereignty in the people is within the people. The adversarial intelligentsia has a problem with that, and the whole what we haven't discussed here in decline, maybe we'll get to it later, but um, I see decline um, as, an, as an ideological weapon uh, used essentially by the adversarial intelligentsia. I mean, their uh, decline is a political weapon. We can see this when you look at um, members of the elite. Uh, two heads of the Office of Policy and Planning at the U.S. State Department, Policy Planning Office is the, the intellectual heart of the State Department. Remember, it was George Kennan was the head of it. Uh, well, under George Bush, uh, for a couple of years, it was headed by Richard Haas. Under Barack Obama, it was headed by Anne-Marie Slaughter. And both of these people have written that America should give up some sovereignty, so sovereignty should be diminished. Why? Uh, because uh, America's in decline, and because America's in decline, we want to move toward uh, more of a global governance system, uh, because what that will do, we will be able to bring in the let's say the Chinese elites and the elites from other countries, we need to institutionalize them, have their, uh, their, uh, their elites essentially internalize the concept of global governance and global law so that when <coughs> America declines and they become more powerful, uh, we won't be in danger because they'll have adopted all these, they'll be domesticated and they'll have adopted all these global laws. So, that, so the, the argument for decline is actually an argument for uh, global governance. This is what uh, Mrs. Classic Anne Marie Slaughter, and even to an extent the Republicans under Haas, some of the so called realists are really talking about, yeah, we are going to decline, therefore, that's why we need global governance. These people, of course, as if the Chinese, say 40 years from now, if we just discussed because of their demographics, they may not be a power, but even let's even say they were, why would they necessarily follow uh, what, uh, what they had agreed to earlier? And even Bill Clinton, um, uh, he had long conversations with Strobe Talbot, who was his deputy secretary of state. And Clinton was giving a lot of speeches after the presidency saying we have to, we're not going to be cock of the roost forever. This is exact quote from Clinton. So we've got to build a global social system that our grandchildren can live in when America is no longer the top dog. So this is all sort of a preparation for decline. So I see decline as, as an ideological weapon um, wielded by the adversarial intelligentsia that essentially wants to diminish American sovereignty, move away from Philadelphian sovereignty uh, toward global government. Questions from the floor? Uh, Daniel. Yeah, you didn't mention, Simon, um, Tocqueville's other great work uh, on the Ancien Regime and the Revolution. Um, and would you agree that he always, to some extent, saw America through the eyes of a French politician, actually, uh, and, uh, and very much a, a historian of France um, who in a sense, was, was trying to draw lessons uh, from across the Atlantic uh, to understand what was happening in his own country. And, um, I mean, and what he, of course, observed was democracy, and, and uh, you know, this was the great new phenomenon. But what he doesn't seem to have um, found in America uh, was socialism. Um, I mean, you know, remember, he was a man who lived through revolutions uh, himself, uh, not, of course, the the first great French Revolution, but, but the subsequent ones. Um, and I wanted to throw into the discussion another visitor to America, the German sociologist Werner Zombart, uh, who round about the year 1900 wrote a book called Why Is There No Socialism in America? Um, and isn't it interesting that uh, 
we now are living through a time when not only do we have a kind of socialism, we even have a socialist president in America. Um, you know, for a very long time, it was a sort of cardinal principle that America diverged from Europe in not having a large socialist movement. Uh, of course, it did have you know, fringe movements and so on, but they never took over the Democratic Party in the way that, arguably, they have now. I mean, the, the, the Democrats now, if you look at the party caucus at least, uh, it's, it's solidly left-wing. I mean, there are, there are no more, uh, you know, obviously the, the Southern Democrats disappeared a long time ago, and the, uh, the Jacksonian uh, sort of interventionists, uh, liberal internationalists, they've been pretty much marginalized as well. Uh, and what we're left with is, is Obama's party. He is actually a very typical Democrat uh, politician now. Uh, so I just wondered what, whether you had any thoughts about what Topfield might have to say about that. Well, it's extraordinarily interesting. I mean, your first point, of course, is well taken. There's no nothing. He actually says quite explicitly that though I observed America, I always had France in mind. I w Sorry, he, he said quite explicitly, though I went and observed America, I always had France in mind. Um, but I always feel, in a sense... What is so interesting, therefore, is how much of America he did see. I mean, what, what is so remarkable is that, given that he went with, as it were, a, a, a peculiar French concern, how much he actually did open his eyes and, um, uh, and see what was there. It's quite interesting. One reads the book in the way a literary critic does. It's how many, how many times the word surprise appears or shocked appears. He is, he is genuinely taken aback time and time again by what he sees. Um, you're quite right. He didn't, he, not only did he not find socialism, because what he found in America was a peculiar respect for other people's property. Now, that really is a Frenchman talking, and it's a French liberal talking, because, because he says, what early 19th century France is full of is no respect for other people's property. I mean, the, the overwhelming desire to steal it the moment you can. Um, true as it were, both of rich and poor in, 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 in early 19th century France. So he's very, very struck by the absence of socialism in, in, in early 19th century America by comparison with early 19th century and feels that he has to explain it in terms, in terms of American religion, in terms of American um, a sense of the inviolability of property, and of course also in terms of, of, of American social mobility. Just say one thing though about, about, about the Sombart thesis. I mean, I always thought that one has to be careful. I mean, this, the question is why is there no socialism in America? The answer is because they don't need it, because if you want socialist utopianism in America, you just go and do it yourself. I mean, the, uh, America in 1900 had literally thousands of utopian um, which were often, as it were, run on socialist or quasi-socialist basis. So in America, it's offered the opportunity for do-it-yourself socialism, um, <laughs> which is, is not in Tom Bill, um, but that might be one possible explanation. William Talker. Um, th thank you. I mean, I've been listening in, in awe to everybody today. It's been an extraordinary already, and that's before Daniel. Um, a remarkable series of speeches and talks and conversations. I, I just wanted to bring up something that John Fonte mentioned just now about the elites in America being uh, in particular uh, or particularly uh, dismissive, if you like, of American ex uh, exceptionalism, which we've certainly seen with this president, and uh, that that is true in American elite universities and so on. And in a way, perhaps that's similar to what we have faced in Britain, where the elites have been very, uh, most of them, not all of them, but most of them have been very enthusiastic for the diminution of British sovereignty and the pooling of sovereignty in the European Union. 
Uh, I was uh, a conservative friend of mine in London said to me recently that she had been told by a former conservative cabinet minister that her Euroscepticism made her unfit, really, for any office in Britain <laughs> at all now. And uh, that, uh, is, that, that was only a few months before the collapse of the euro began. And uh, we are seeing in this extraordinary collapse of the, of the European experiment um, something very fundamental that's going to have a vast impact upon, uh, British, uh, on European society and upon the world economy. And um, uh, the exploration of that sort of idea of pooling of sovereignty has got a long... I mean, you know, the, the implications of that has got a long way to go. But going back to what John Fonte said about Richard Haas and Henri Slaughter and so on, saying that we must diminish, we must pool American sovereignty with the emerging nations, uh, people like China, to try and domesticate them. Um, I, I totally agree that anything that diminishes American exceptionalism is a great danger for the world. And the, 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 the America has been rightly the, seen as the lodestar and should continue to be so. But how can that, in present circumstances, be protected? Um, and how can the issues that we discussed this morning and Charles Murray most eloquently displayed of the problems of the, uh, the, the growing indebtedness and uh, bankruptcy of the state be, be reversed? It's very, very hard today. Uh, the center of gravity has moved both in Europe and in the United States so much to, to the left of where it was 50 years ago in the polit political discourse. And I just wonder, what is the alternative? I'm, I'm not, in, not, not proposing the Richard Haas and Marie Slaughter uh, um, solution. What is the alternative way in which the United States can help domesticate, I think was the phrase you used, uh, and introduce the rule of law to nations like, ever more poor, powerful nations like China, and yet retain its own preeminence as the lodestar. Uh, Roger Kimball. Uh, Simon, I, I too uh, very much liked your paper. You said that if, uh, if, if somebody had um, undertaken a careful reading of Tocqueville, that your, your remarks were superfluous. I've, I've tried, I've, I have read Tocqueville carefully, but I can't remember. Um, you know, at the center of your of your um, presentation was the idea of uh, democratic despotism. You know, Tocqueville says that this is how this, this is the tutelary spirit. If, if despotism comes to a democracy, it will be in this peculiar form of infantilizing men rather than tyrannizing them, and so on. And it's a very eloquent uh, passage. And it, you know, um, uh, it, like many other commentators, I've often quoted it and said that's exactly what's happening now. But, you know, I cannot remember uh, um, whether Tocqueville says um, what we should do about it. it, it well, yes, it, it, it is, it's right at the end, as you know, right, right, right at the end of, of, of part four of volume two. And it is, it is juxtaposed with this notion, as it were, of what he calls the inherent nature of democracy and the countervailing arts of democracy. So he says what you should do about it is, is cultivate the arts of when I say local government, I don't mean states government. I mean township government, free associations, and the religious spirit. Those, those are the, well, not just the best, those are the only ways of avoiding democratic corruption. You said that many, many people uh, um, read uh, Democracy in America the way a literary critic would, looking for various phrases. And so Does the phrase Tea Party occur in it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeremy Black. 
Yes, I was just thinking about John's remark about the use of decline in terms of political debate and partisan politics at the present moment, in this case, it's from the left. I think with all uses of political argument, one has simultaneously the, um, the possibility of doing so in a partisan fashion, which is doubtless the case with decline, but there are also objective criteria to look at, which in a sense was what the second two papers, indeed the first paper, was doing this morning. And I think that in a way, um, if we simply say that this is a part of a political discourse in a partisan politics of the present day, while true, we don't engage with the full issue of the question of uh, decline. Uh, to my mind, there needs to be, in looking at whatever is the great power in the system, and the great power, and very wonderfully for the rest of the world at the present moment, is the United States, there needs to be a distinction between absolute and relative decline, and criteria or evidence used to establish or deny one does not disprove the other. So what I'm essentially saying is we need to have quite a lot more intellectual rigor in the use of the language we're using because we're, on the one hand, eliding distinctions between partisan and real criteria, and on the other hand, we're failing always to address the issue of absolute as opposed to relative decline, or for that matter, growth. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any questions? Uh, Douglas? Can I just pick up on something that uh, John Fonte said and also uh, ask your help as well as Tocqueville's on this, but one of the things it seems to me is a crucial uh, moment in any decline is whether or not you trust your own actions as, as an individual and as a nation. And the perception of many people for years was that Europeans had had, uh, had religious wars and many other things than the events of the 20th century that made them distrust their instincts as populations as well as people, as well as original sins, uh, such as colonialism and so on but that America managed to escape this until fairly recently when the motif of, of original sin entered the body politic of America, now right up to the presidency. And it seems that America has arrived at that point, as Roger Sandall said some years ago, where everyone else is born into innocence and we are born into guilt. Yeah. And in that situation, America has fallen exactly down the route that the rest of the West has fallen into. But I can't remember what Tocqueville says about this or whether he sees that coming. No, he doesn't see it coming. It's very interesting. He, um, he comments on the extraordinary, um, and in, in some ways, I suppose, <laughs> fragile uh, nature of, of American patriotic pride. Remember, Amer Americans for Tocqueville are not mad patriots because they're not ancient Republican patriots. They're not willing to lay down everything, including their lives, for they're moderate patriots. But curious enough, they're moderate patriots who express their patriotism in, in rather strident language. Uh, and, and as he says, when, when he's there, in a sense, you, you can't tell them anything about, about their own regime. Um, in fact, you can't even tell them that you think that, uh, it's a nice day today because they'll contradict you and say, oh, no, it isn't. So the Americans, he, he, he comments, are, in, in a curious kind of way, either naively or, 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 or perhaps brittly, um, um, as it were, confident of their own actions. Yeah. Um, and that phenomenon that you described, he, he does not see that. Uh, I always find it very difficult to, 
to, to talk about this to an American audience because everything you've said is so much worse in Europe, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> therefore, it seems very curious to be sort of um, lecturing Americans on, on a disease that we've had for a very long time in a, in a particularly pathological fashion. So, uh, Jim. I think I just wondered, I mean, thinking about, you know, in a sense, there's two sides, aren't there, to this debate about decline. What one, one about, in a sense, what, what, what is happening within America itself, but the other side is, is, is America's role in the world and how America is perceived by other states. And I just wondered, you know, reading back to the paper, you know, America has always been the future for many other states in the world. You know, for some people, it, even California has been the future, but that's clearly not the case at the moment. Um, but to what extent does America's position in the world now mean that, and, and perceptions of America's role in the world, including anti-Americanism, um, mean that America is not perceived as the future by other states? And to what, to what, what effect does that have in turn on America's imagining of itself? It's a very good question, but can I, can I just complicate it? Because in a sense, the man who really said, I've seen the future and it works, was, of course, an American talking about another country. Uh, and we, we tend to forget that uh, um, the, the notion of, that America was not the future, but another country was the future, the, the Soviet Union, was extraordinarily powerful in the world between the revolution and when? Uh, into the 1960s. I mean, one sees the models of so many of the new nations, being the Soviet model rather than the American model. So, the notion that America is not the future has actually got a history of its own, which is not a very satisfactory answer to the question, but um, it's the best I can do. Thanks. And, yeah, uh, Jim Bennett. Can we um, look for a minute at the disconnect between elite and uh, ordinary opinion in the United States in the matter of guilt and decline? Uh, because I think that everything that has been said about perceptions of decline, narratives of decline, and its usefulness uh, in this guilt narrative is definitely true with the intellectual elite and a lot of the policy elite, particularly on the left, but probably fairly broadly shared in certain sectors of the population. But it's by no means, I think, the majority opinion in the country. I think that uh, there's a very broad mass of the population, again, particularly in the red states, uh, where the idea of decline is maybe a nagging concern that if we continue on this uh, path, it will be decline. I think the media has tended to actually overstate the uh, degree to which we've already experienced decline. For instance, if there's been any decline over the last 30 years, it's been primarily Europe, whose share of world GDP has shrunk by, what, like 10%, whereas America's has actually remained uh, about what it was. Uh, and this disconnect, which shows up again in politics, uh, 
means that there is a base for an appeal to Americans who think decline is actually a bad thing and would like to do whatever is needed to reverse it. Uh, and I think that the people who do not believe the decline narrative or do not, would not want to accept it are still much closer to the America that Hookville saw than the elite opinion. Have you got any? To Jim Pearson's uh, remark about guilt, I think it's important um, to distinguish between objective guilt, that is to say, you actually stole the loaf of bread, so you're guilty of that, and feelings of guilt, which um, are cultivated by a certain species of liberal sensibility in order to justify certain kinds of actions. I mean, I, I think that the, this I may um, also speak to Jim Bennett's point uh, about this the, the dichotomy between elite opinion. And, and the rest of it, uh, it seems to me that the, 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 these feelings of guilt that are cultivated and foisted upon people um, uh, are, are often have very little, if any, objective basis. So that, you know, I mean, um, there's no reason to feel guilty about the environment or oppression and so on. It's just, it's a, it's a narrative without substance. Okay, we'll, we'll move on to the next paper. It's by my standpoint colleague, Daniel Johnson, and it's on the mythology of decline. Daniel. Thank you, Michael. Well, um